Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 252 with Edgar Papke. I think you will find this episode pretty transformational if you really listen and apply the stuff he says. We're talking about design thinking and how to bring about some creative, innovative ideas. And my favorite parts where he talks about how to engage folks in conversation in some, in some cool, curious confrontation sorts of ways. So you're going to learn, one, how three distinct workplace cultures solve problems differently. Two, the process of successful curious confrontation. And three, how to choose which problems are worth pursuing. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F252. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our nifty stuff. One I'd point you to today is the magnifying glass that appears on the awesomeatyourjob.com website. So if you think you may have potentially heard someone, some guest say something at some point, you can resurrect that readily. Click it, search it. Every conversation here has been transcribed. So the wisdom of 252 and counting folks will be available to you immediately. Or if you're not quite sure about a previous guest, but you imagine we've maybe have talked to one of them about an issue that's relevant to you right now, you can search that way at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Edgar's story. Edgar Papke is an author, speaker, and globally recognized expert in business alignment, leadership, and organizational culture. He's the author of True Alignment, linking company culture to customer needs for extraordinary results, the elephant in the boardroom, and numerous essays and articles on business and culture. Edgar provides coaching and consulting to CEOs and executives, delivers keynote speeches and presentations, and works with leadership teams to improve their alignment. He was recently honored as the Impact and International Speaker of the Year by Vistage, the world's largest organization for CEOs. Worldwide, over 20,000 executives and leaders have attended his workshops. Here is Edgar. Edgar, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to spend time with you. Oh, boy. Well, I think we'd have a lot of fun. And I was intrigued to dig into your background. So you've got three albums of music, whether it's a singer or a songwriter, a, de- a degree in culinary arts, and you do a whole lot of the speaking, consulting, workshop thing. I want to get your take on what is it that you delight in within these kind of different seeming fields? And is there a common thread that is really kind of works with you and how your brain functions? Yeah, very much so. I think right at the core of it is a, a common thread that runs through just about all of my work and anything that I do uh, both professionally as well as pursue artistically, is art, it's creativity. And just allowing myself to explore and uh, discover and express uh, creatively is that uh, common thread. And then around that, there's this desire to learn and explore. So whether it's uh, learning to play a musical instrument better, uh, learn how to sing better, or how to create a great dish in the kitchen, or writing a book. To me, it's all a creative process and a learning process. So there's always the learning that goes with it, which is, is just fascinates me. Yeah, that is good. And I didn't think we'd go deep on here, but I, I have to touch upon it. So right now, as you talk about the learning and how like that's sort of intrinsically enjoyable to you, I guess I, the first thing I thought about was kind of Carol Dweck's fixed mindset versus growth mindset, and, and how... 
it seems like you are just very comfortably situated in a growth mindset. Well, you tell me, it sounds like you're not stressing if the dish you create is terrible or, no. <laughs> or that the, the instrument you play is sounds harsh and shrill and, and annoying to anyone who's, you know, within earshot, you're just, you're just digging the growth. Any perspectives you have in terms of how you, you keep that kind of alive or does it just come totally naturally to you? Yeah, I think there's an aspect of it and there's a, there's a, I think an ongoing conversation about letting people fail in the business world and in organizations. And I don't really think of a moment in time or an outcome as ever being a failure. Not much anymore. I think I used to do that much more when I was younger. I've come around to the idea that everything that I do is a prototype of one type or another. And so it's not so much a failure as an outcome. And the outcome is just another step along the way. I know it may sound corny. To call it all one, you know, one long journey, yet it is. And so every time I endeavor into something, I'm willing to do it and then let go of it into the world and just keep moving, moving on with it. And yeah, I've done a lot of things that just somebody would look at and say, you know, well, that's kind of crazy or that's not perhaps as good as it could be. And yet for me, it's as long as I'm trying my best and as long as I'm putting something out there that I can continuously improve from, that makes me happy. And I do think that that's part of the human endeavor, that ability to pursue knowledge, to create, to expand our personal and uh, social horizons. And I think that's a necessity of the quality of human nature. Oh, I dig it. I dig it. That the human experience, starting deep. And even that turn of phrase, I think I'm going to stick with that in my own personal life and viewpoint. Everything I do is a prototype because just the word prototype, at least for me, I don't know, I have the already just fantastic connotations of a prototype is one, progress. It's like, oh, hey, I got a prototype. Oh, cool. I, let me try it out. Let me take a look. You know, to go from not an idea or a rough sketch to a prototype equals progress. And at the same time, it implies unfinishedness. So at least for me, it, it's hitting my emotional cords just right to say everything I do is a prototype because it is simultaneously cool progress, but also unfinished and nobody should expect it to be finished it's just a prototype so chill out about it yeah and i think that's and that's what attracted me initially to the ideas around design thinking because design is change it's art it's a creative approach to solving problems or using an idea and i think that's what design thinking and, and my work with tom is, has been all about the co-author thomas lockwood of the book I know he's extremely, extremely creative, and he's also very logical and sequential in his thinking. I lean much more towards the creative side, the freewheeling side, yet in my personality, there's always this quest to be more competent, to try and master something and get something to a certain point. And knowing that, whatever point I get to, it's just another stepping stone moving it forward. And that's what design thinking is really all about in an organizational context. We don't really get hooked or get too rigid about anything that we're doing or an outcome that we have. Rather, we keep seeking a better or, or more advanced way of doing something or creating something. Okay. And so then with the design thinking, this term has come up a couple times on the show, but I'd love to hear your crack at it. How would you sort of define this term? If someone says design thinking, what does that generally refer to? And in the book, we talk about this as the collective imagination and what design thinking brings out is, is a, just who we all are as human beings. 
and that's our creative capability. So design thinking in of itself is looking at a problem or looking at a situation very contextually and looking at it through in a holistic way and then starting a conversation of what's possible. And from there, it leads into more process or systemic ways of coming at that in organizations. One of the things that we really enjoy is some predictability of how things are going to get done. And design thinking gives people permission in organizations and in teams and groups. It gives them permission to be more creative, to express themselves more freely, to pursue knowledge and ideas in different ways that pretty much in a lot of organizations gets dampened. It gets suppressed by wanting too much process. And really in of itself, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because you're applying a predictability or process to more unpredictability, more creativity, more freewheeling thinking and idea generation. So design thinking in of itself, it's an approach, it's a process, and it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. Much like you and I have been talking about it, it leans much more into possibility thinking than it does into restricting or uh, being rigid about our way of thinking or seeing the world. Okay, thank you. And then, so then, so your book here, Innovation by Design, you lay out some perspectives and practices that can unleash great creative and innovative things in organizations. So I'd love to hear that sort of top level thesis in terms of ultimately, what is the distinction or the key to go about tapping into and leveraging more great innovation? Excellent question. And um, what comes to mind immediately for me, and uh, one of the things that we looked at through the lens and doing research for the book, is the connection between design thinking and creative thinking in organizations and their cultures. When we look at high level, what we do, there's always a what, and then there's emotional driver of why behind it. And then we start getting into the how part of it. And culture really is all about how things get done and what's expected of people in terms of their behavior, what's acceptable or unacceptable. And I think one of the keys here is to really be able to understand how problems get solved, how decisions get made, how conflicts get managed in an organization, and how its culture informs people about how to go do that, and then be able to understand how design thinking as an approach, as a process, both fits a culture as well as can move a culture and move it. What I mean by move it is in positive and more innovative ways. Now, so I love how you, you say it's so important. Well, I get you didn't say it, but I guess I think you, (laughs) but I think you believe it, that it's important to have some clarity associated with those areas, how decisions get made, how problems get solved. And I have flashbacks to consulting work at Bain and company, in which we would, we use a tool called the rapid framework for decision-making, like who who has what role for a given decision, who makes a recommendation, who approves it, who performs it, who provides input, who ultimately owns the decision. So it's the acronym RAPID. And I found that so helpful because in some organizations, there are some decisions that are quite fuzzy. It's wildly unclear who really has the decision. Everyone's kind of concerned about covering their rears. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's the same thought I just had was in, in some instances, people don't want to make the decision. Oh, certainly. Yeah, and, 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 and so they wrote more and more and more people in to provide input. 
so that it's like, well, such that it's like someone can be uh, blamed or whatever. So I've seen in my own work and life how bringing clarity to uh, decision-making is fantastically helpful and useful in terms of that, how does this given decision get made? Could you share us a little bit in terms of how do problems get solved? Could you maybe lay out the maybe menu of options associated with, hey, in some organizations, problems get solved in this kind of way and others in that kind of way? Yeah. And we break it down in my previous work through True Alignment. We break it down into three distinct types of cultures. And so from that, you can use those as a springboard to see how decisions are made in different ways. Uh, One culture we call a participation culture, which is very collaborative. And so decisions are much more driven. uh, Leaders don't own a decision as much as a group does. And so there's much more of a collaboration consensus building and a quest towards agreement within the group as to what the best path is, uh, not just to buy in, rather to gain a higher level of commitment to the, to the decision and the outcome that's been reached. That's different than an expertise culture where uh, decisions are generally driven by those that either have the authority or by way of establishing and demonstrating their competency that they're given the power and influence to make decisions. So it's less of a collaboration process. It's more of uh, we either turn to the experts, we turn to the people with the authority, whatever it happens to be. And then there's also a third one, which is authenticity cultures. And there's a great degree of, of personal empowerment that takes place. So decision-making can be driven very rapidly by individuals in whatever situation that they're in because they feel empowered and, and they're given the right or they're expected to make the decision at a very personal level. So you can hear there's some distinct differences. And it's interesting to note that those elements become very important in terms of how problems get solved as well. Do we collectively come together? Do we turn to experts or have one or two people solve a problem for us because we deem them to be the most competent? Or is it a matter that everyone gets to explore and learn and everybody gets to take risks? So even risk-taking takes on different definitions. What is interesting about that is that very often leaders don't pay enough attention to that in organizations. And so there's there's a degree of disconnect. They'll say, in other words, in, in an expertise culture, sometimes a leader will say, well, I want people to feel empowered. I want them to make decisions, etc. Yet the reality is that people are constantly seeking permission or going to one or two people in the organization to solve most of their problems and make decisions for them. So it's, a, it's very interesting how often uh, leaders and managers don't really know how to interpret their culture. They don't really have a map for it. Right. Well, that's very thought-provoking, and I could chew on that for a while. Instead, maybe you'd like to zoom in on, in your book, you lay out 10 attributes that sort of facilitate a great innovation. And, and I, as I peruse them, it seems like a number of them are maybe helpful at sort of a, the a more of a senior leadership level, and correctly if I'm mischaracterizing anything, and others seem like, hey, that's something absolutely any professional can do, no matter their stature or authority or absence or presence of, of direct reports. So could you share uh, maybe a couple of the practices that are amongst the most actionable and universal for all professionals? Yeah, I, I think all 10 of them are accessible to anybody in any part of the organization or at any level of an organization, at least from an 
understanding perspective. The first one that we talk about in the book, Design Thinking at Scale, has a tendency we probably look at it from the top of the organization and say, well, how do we train and how do we move design thinking or the process of design thinking through an organization? And yet we find that the organizations and those in our study group in the book that do it exceptionally well are the ones that engage everyone in the organization in learning the process of design thinking and how to look at a situation with empathy through, say, a customer's eyes or another person in the organization, their eyes and and what the context that they're in and and be able to solve problems well at that level. So it's kind of, I think that they're all accessible and it really has a great degree to do with how leadership approaches it and how it moves through an organization. That being said, I think the ones that really step out most often for anyone to be able to use are, one is the attribute of curious confrontation, because as we well know from our from our experiences, just about everybody struggles with how to manage conflict effectively, especially in the workplace. And conflict is an ongoing challenge that we all have as human beings. And curious confrontation is really taking a look at the term itself, confrontation, meaning to face the truth. So I don't have to have a solution to a problem or have a have a, a solution to a conflict that I'm in with someone or within a group. What I do need to be able to do is to step into it, to be able to say, you know, there there is something we need to talk about here. There is a conflict. There's a disparity in the way that we see or think about things. And let's have a conversation. And the curiosity element is the one that says that there's a desire to explore, desire to investigate, a desire to peel away the layers in a conflict and see what's really at the core and what the core problems are. So anyone in an organization can actually learn to confront through inquiry and to ask questions as opposed to always just stepping into everything with an answer. And that in itself is very, very powerful for any of us to engage in, whether it's in the workplace or or in our personal lives. And also the aspect of co-creation, just the simple idea that we rely on one another in our creative process. In other words, great innovation and creativity is the building of one idea upon another. Hence, it goes back to earlier in our conversation about prototype. Here's an idea. Let's build on the idea. And so this idea of co-creation is really leaning into including people around us in ways that we probably haven't done before and asking them to help us to be creative in solving problems or finding new paths to innovating at higher levels. And so much of what we do, we have a tendency to just look at our own world or live in our own world, uh, whether it's at work or in other parts of our lives without really reaching out or opening up to engaging others in creating and uh, finding solutions to the problems that we that we have. So the idea of co-creation and opening up to that, I think, is, is a wonderful attribute for anyone to have as an individual and to be able to use. Okay, well, so I'd like to hear well, a couple of things here. When it comes to curious confrontation, I guess... <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Well, a couple of things are coming to mind. And one, hey, a friend of a friend mentioned that he or she had a coworker who would often just shoot out an email note like, hey, several of my comments have not been integrated into the document. 
so so this person did not have a solution, which is, I guess, pros and cons. You know, some folks will say, don't bring me a problem without a solution. And, and you're saying, well, no, hey, it could be totally cool to say, no, we, I don't know the answer yet. But we're going to engage in a curious confrontation. And that's cool. And then I guess there are other times when, when someone just you know makes a, an observation like that, it's like, well, well, I don't know what you want me to say or do, or this is really doesn't really warrant any uh, conversation time right here or now. It, it's sort of like, should I, I drop everything and say, well, yes, you're right. I uh, looked at your comments and I determined that they did not, in fact, strengthen the document given these rationales. And so I guess at times I'm thinking that could be very helpful for folks to learn and grow and develop and, and get more tuned into the brain and the goal of the leadership and getting sharpened and strengthened and challenged. And the other, flip side, that could just take a whole lot of time. That is, is that really a smart use of, of resources? So I'll just, hey, how's that for curious confrontation? I'm just going to drop that in your lap, Edgar. What do you think of that? Well, uh, several thoughts cross my mind as I'm listening to you. So let me go back to the beginning and then work my way through it. Uh, the first one is a lot of times people use the statement, don't just bring me a problem, bring me a solution. Unfortunately, if I don't have a solution, and that's the price of admission for us to have a conversation. We're, we're going to have a, a hard time talking about things. Um, my preference is always to, uh, and I coach leaders to do this directly, is, is stay away from that part of the, if you if there's a problem and you want to talk to me about it, bring me a solution, is probably better delivered by just changing it slightly to if you identify a problem and you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. I'd like you to find a solution or think about solution, possible solutions. If you can't come up with anything, let's talk anyway. I think we've got to always have the door wide open as leaders to engage in coaching and learning with the people around us. And so bring me a solution. I like the idea of try and bring me a solution. If you can't, let's talk anyway. Because a lot of times problems don't get surfaced because people are afraid to talk about them because they're going to see be seen in the light as you know, not smart enough or not competent enough or not doing enough about it. So that in of itself, I think, can be problematic. Going back to your example, I, your example is a really good one. So somebody shoots off some emails, then they're not responded to. There's three things that everybody always wants. Uh, it's human nature. And this is also what wraps around the idea of the collective imagination and who we are as human beings and how we innovate. And one of them is that we all want to be heard. We all want to feel a part of and be acknowledged. And when we're not acknowledged, uh, we feel ignored. And that's very problematic. So I think if somebody's sending emails and they're not responded to and they raise the issue, uh, rather than come have a quick comeback for it or have a, an answer, sometimes it's just simply to ask somebody and open up to the idea of what's important to them. To be able to say, okay, uh, yes, I didn't respond. Let's speak truthfully here. I didn't respond. And um, let's talk about what's important to you about this issue or uh, about your ideas. And if I did, by the way, like in your scenario, if I did take a look at the emails and I didn't think they were good ideas, it's probably a little bit of a problem where I didn't communicate back with you. So a lot of times I think it's all also a matter of being responsible to our relationships and to be able to do what we do what we need to to respond in a, in a human way to not ignore to pay attention 
And uh, very often, rather than if somebody does confront us with an issue or we have to talk to somebody about something, I think inquiry is about asking, being able to open up the conversation to help me to understand what's important to you about this and what your ideas are and what might work and what might not. I think there's not just only a, a coaching opportunity for leaders in these kinds of conversations. I think just with coworkers, I think it's important to recognize that if we take the time to build relationships at the level that we need to, then a lot of the time that we spend in dysfunctional conflict and not being able to talk about things or go, having to go back and fix things, I think we can avoid those. We can move past those much more quickly if we have a good ongoing relationship. And that does take time. It's like any other great relationship. Take the time up front and you'll save a lot of time down the road. Well, Edgar, I appreciate that. And you, I think you have a, a kindness and generosity in, about you in, in that response. And, and I guess in my knee-jerk reaction in hearing the story relayed, I was thinking, who expects to have 100% of their comments integrated into any document ever. It's kind of like the nature of the beast is that when you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, some of your ideas will stick and some of them won't. And, and it might be a little unrealistic for a person to to just sort of say, not all of my comments made it into the document as an expectation. But you're saying, to paraphrase, it sounds like maybe that relationship isn't at the strongest, that <laughs> they feel ignored, hurt, unseen. And thus, this is sort of like a, a request to address that matter. And so that there could very well be some, I don't know, quote unquote, valid, deep seated things in terms of their beliefs and values and input that are not getting acknowledged, as opposed to this is just an annoying coworker who has unrealistic expectations who needs to get over it. You've just really touched on something really powerful, and that's the idea of expectations. One of the things that we generally don't do well enough in any relationship, especially within a group context in the workplace, is talk about the expectations we have for one another, how information might be used, how well we're going to be heard by one another, how we expect responses from one another. Unspoken expectations, uh, they wind up getting us into resentment and uh, into conflict. That's often unnecessary. Uh, they're the slippery slope. So bringing expectations into the spoken realm becomes key. And I'm going to tie that back, if I may, back to design thinking, because if you have a process through which people are heard, how they can engage, that they can predictably be open and uh, willing to express themselves freely around their ideas, around concerns, or whatever it happens to be, in of itself, you're creating an environment of some predictability of expectation of how things are going to happen. So the idea of design thinking of itself is to have inclusion, it's to have involvement, it's about sharing information, and to, it's a different way of working together. And it does, in fact, satisfy a level of expectation need that we all have. Oh, I like that. Oh, so I, absolutely. You've zeroed in on that. It's like, it seems as though we have a mismatch of expectations. I'm sort of imagining lots of inputs coming in and we're just going to quickly triage them and, and again, get the document out the door quickly, given the timeline. And it sounds like you may have the expectation that each of your comments will be absolutely integrated. Is that fair? And then you could have that conversation dialogue and then it seems like everybody wins. So I like that notion of there are unspoken mismatched expectations at work 
in that example. And it's great to get after them. And there might be an epiphany moment like, oh, okay, so nobody gets all of their their comments integrated in the document? Oh, okay, that's totally cool. But okay, well, sure. I, I didn't know that's the game we were playing here. Okay, and then we're all aligned there. That's awesome. So I also want to follow up on, on co-creation. Could you maybe just give us an example or two? You talk about we're often in our own worlds, doing our own thing and missing out on the opportunities to really co-create something cool by reaching out into different places. So could you maybe bring that to life with uh, an example or a case study? Yeah, sure. There's um, one of my favorites is actually what Visa does in their innovation centers. So Visa is one of the companies we talk about in the book, and they have a, a design function within the organization that specifically is geared towards bringing design thinking throughout the organization as a whole and and involving everyone. And what they've done in the co-creation space is they've opened innovation centers. They have several, one out in the Bay Area in San Francisco, one in London. And what they're doing is inviting the actual customer in. So they're doing business to business. And of course, there's the business to consumer of their customer experience that's taking place. And uh, so what, what they do is they invite the the customer into the innovation center and they actually recreate or create a retailer experience, a retail experience of some kind for a customer, for a consumer. And we'll get inputs from different people as part of that process all the way down to the consumer. So you have Visa, then you have the business itself, say whether it's a Costco or Neiman Marcus or whoever it is that they're working with. And then they also include their consumer and they co-create and look at what the actual experience is of the shopper in a retail space. So you actually create the environment and the co-creation process is everyone begins to get involved in a particular innovation, whether it's an information component, whether it's an actual experiential moment that a consumer has, whether it's online or in a retail environment. And so this co-creation is really about a broader involvement, different parties getting involved and uh, bringing their ideas and bringing their their thoughts into the into the process. So as we say the retail environment, so we're actually like inside a Costco with a customer and just sort of maybe talking out loud, like, hey, what are you thinking about this credit card swiper right now and seeing what happens? Yeah, pretty much. You're taking it down to that level and say, exactly, what exactly is the experience look like? And how do we get input into that so that we contextually can better understand and better create solutions to problems and create new ideas and new ways to do things. Oh, that's good. And so then that could really surface some of the nitty gritty in terms of, oh, do I have to push English or Spanish first before I can swipe it? Or can I go ahead and swipe it? Or is it a chip? Is it a tap? Is it a swipe? How do I know when it's ready for my swipe? So you could really probably zero in on some of those things that might be sort of not in the immediate consciousness of a, of a visa executive. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Uh, also in the book, we write about New Zealand and New Zealand trade and enterprise, and their co-creation process is broader. So New Zealand's trade and enterprise group, what they're responsible for is for expanding the New Zealand's economy on a global basis. So they also invite entrepreneurs and business owners and executives from different companies in New Zealand into the process. 
And they take that all the way out and uh, do co-creation and training around design thinking that then can be used worldwide in different markets and different ways with different customers and consumers as well as different companies. So this co-creation can be very expansive and it allows us to be able to integrate different ways of thinking and different ideas much more readily and quickly as well as the creative process is more expansive, so it's more open. And as a result of that, your ability to identify and to solve problems or or identify and create opportunities is much faster, it's much more fluid. There's also this aspect of free expression that we all enjoy as human beings naturally, which is just to throw ideas out and see what happens. And a lot of the co-creation process and great ideas actually get generated that way. Oh, cool. Well, so you you also have an attribute that you mentioned called going after the right problems. And so what do you mean by that? And is it common to slip into addressing the wrong problems? And and how do we keep our mental acuity to stay focused appropriately? Yeah, I think what happens a lot, and we all, I believe, have this experience, is that very often we look for the shortcut. Or look for the easiest problems to solve. Sometimes we're not going to take the time to collect all the information that we need to identify what, what a real problem can be. This attribute is coming at it through the lens of identifying what the right problem is. It becomes a key to success and in innovation in business. It really does mean paying much more attention to the consumer and to the customer. And ideally, involving them and identifying uh, what it is that they're really seeking and wanting. I'm, I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned before that I think is powerful, is that do I have to go through a sequence for you as a provider of a product or service to understand who I am? So whether it's in Spanish or English or whatever language it happens to be, how quickly can you communicate with me in a way that I feel both appreciated, that you're paying attention to my way of communicating, as well as how easily you can communicate with me? So I think when you start peeling that one away, you might say, well, the problem isn't how do we guide someone to our way of, of doing a transaction. Perhaps what we do is we understand who the customer is and we create a technology that allows us to respond to that particular customer in a way that makes them comfortable. In other words, if I'm Spanish speaking and you understand that as a provider of product or service, the right problem may not be that you put me through a process that you want me to go through. Rather, you design a way of interacting with me, uh, whether it's artificial intelligence or using whatever technology that you have, so that my comfort in communicating is much more immediate and allows me to actually be able to communicate in a way to get what I want. Okay, cool. Thank you. And so, well, Edgar, tell me, anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and talk about some of your favorite things? I I think there's one other aspect of this that I think is important, and that's another one of the attributes, and that's this idea of open spaces. What we find more and more of these community-like uh, spaces that organizations and that we're creating in the workplace. And so when you start thinking about open spaces and whole communication, and, commu- and whole communication is taking on different forms, different forms of art, different forms of expression that you see people using. And co-creation in of itself, uh, you see how these then come together 
You see co-creation in open spaces, community spaces, where people can interact much more easily with one another, and things are much more fluid. That seems to be one thing that any organization can undertake to help them to be more successful, especially when it comes to design thinking. So walking into a conference room or a boardroom, and rather than having paintings on the wall, having white space on the wall for people to build ideas and to draw and to capture different ideas and build on them as they move forward over a period of time. So we see all of these attributes coming together in such wonderful ways. And one of the keys is to create the spaces for people to be able to engage one another and have that sense of both community as well as a sense of shared purpose. Cool. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? The first thing that comes to mind is is actually something that comes from one of my heroes, which is who is Bob Dylan. And uh, some time ago in an interview somewhere, I came across his thoughts on that everything comes in threes. His way of describing it was that the blues and music is that you'll have a 12-bar blues and it's only wrapped around three chords. And what happens is that two chords create a tension and then the third one comes along and breaks that tension or takes the listener in a direction. And it builds suspense. It also delivers a resolution. So when I think about that and I think about how innovation occurs, there's always these three key elements that we're engaging in. One is that that element of what it is that we're wanting to do and then the emotional element of why. And what design thinking does in relationship to that idea that somewhat of a quote from Dylan is that there's this third piece that creates a resolution to the tension. And if you look at what, why, and how, we can't really have two successfully without having the third. So if we're, if we have a clarity of what we want to accomplish and we have an emotional driver of why, then we need to be able to understand how to get there. And what's a process or what's an approach to doing that? Much like if we had a how and we had a what, if we don't have an emotional driver of why, then nobody really emotionally gets engaged in pursuing the outcomes that we're trying to create and how we do it. So there's this element of always looking at it through that lens. And we also do that in the book around the ideas around the collective imagination, where we talk about our human capacity and desire to to participate our desire to pursue knowledge, and our desire to express ourselves freely, that those are the aspects of human nature that drive our innovative thinking. It's important to always recognize that uh, the importance of having all three, that you can't really do it on two. You have to have that third. And that simple idea that Dylan puts forward to say, well, you're always going to have a tension between two things in life. There's always going to be two things that we want. It's the third one that we need to create a resolution and to move it forward. And I think design thinking does that a lot. It gives people a a how in terms of how to approach and and be more innovative and creative and, and get the things out of life that they want. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? I think some of the wonderful things that uh, Peter Drucker, and I'm going to say that there's more of a body of research in particular, that Peter Drucker, one of the great management minds, I think of our just human history, he had a wonderful way of coming at things. And uh, one of the things that I grab hold of is the simple idea. He, He wrote a book at one point about questions 
and a great set of questions to ask in an organizational context. And they do wrap right back around to things that matter most to us. Now, what it is that we're trying to achieve and why and what is the what is the true benefit we're trying to create. And in an organizational management context, how can we best make that happen? And I find that over time, I keep going back to Peter Drucker's work uh, because of, he was on the forefront of inquiry and asking wonderful questions as to how organizations and leaders how they can perform at their best. And in a way, Thomas, uh, Thomas Lockwood and I, in, in writing the book, we came at it, we started with that simple idea in mind. Let's pose a question and let's research and let's find out what great innovative organizations do and how their ability to use design thinking to be more creative and more innovative, what does that look like? And is there something that's a value in that? And I think Peter Drucker provides a wonderful model for that. Cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Catcher in the Rye and Leonard Cohen, Book of Longing. Under the top two that come to my mind. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? A guitar. Okay. Yeah. When I need some creative space, I stop what I'm doing and I, and I pick up the guitar and play music. And that very often just opens my mind up. Oh, cool. And how about a favorite habit? Eating well. <laughs> Sometimes it's a bad habit. <laughs> Being... Being a former chef and uh, having gone to culinary school, I'd, I'd, I'd love to eat good food. And uh, I think it's habitual. It's a part of our family life as well. Awesome. And is there a particular nugget that you share with your, your audiences or your consulting clients or in the book that really seems to, to resonate and gets folks kind of quoting yourself back to you? I think the one thought that comes back the most often is that uh, the most powerful thing we have in life is choice. Just a simple idea that if we're open uh, to ourselves and the world around us, we'll always find that we always have choice in what we do and say. Cool. And is there a particular place that you would point folks if they want to learn more or get in touch? Yeah. One, of course, is the book, and you can get that anywhere on Amazon and booksellers everywhere. So just the, the book Innovation by Design. And we're launching a website, Inno Alignment, which is I-N-N-O, and then the word alignment, all one.com. And uh, that's where Thomas and I are sharing our collaboration and the work that we'll be doing together going forward. Oh, thank you. And do you have a final challenge or call to action that you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, to listen more, to just to inquire and listen. Lead with asking good questions, sometimes the simplest question of all, which is, tell me more. What's important to you? What are you thinking? Help me understand. I think if we all just were more inquisitive with one another and uh, listened better to one another, I, th I think all of us would have better lives. And, and I think progressively the world's going to keep getting better as long as we do that. Oh, yes. Well, Edgar, thank you for this sort of inspiring and uplifting perspectives. I agree. The world would be a better place if, if we did some of these things. And so this has been a helpful reminder for me and, and hopefully for everyone listening. and. I just wish you tons of luck with the book and, and all the people that you're impacting here. Yeah, thank you very much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. Thanks for your great questions. And uh, again, the opportunity to spend this time with you. Thank you.
Man, I love so much of what Edgar had to say there. Uh, two of my favorite things is, one, everything I do is a prototype, which has served as inspiration for me whenever I'm trying something kind of new. A process maybe is not working as well as I'd like to. I'm not cranking out output the way I find satisfying. It's like, hey, it's a prototype. It's all good. You know, it's not supposed to be perfect yet, but it's something. It's progress, and it enables you to sort of evolve it and work from that and make it ever better, as well as talking about mismatched expectations. I think that Edgar really sort of showed me a kinder side of myself (laughs) that was missing for a moment in the conversation about the annoying coworker. And that really has been helpful to have an extra bit of understanding that, you know what? This could really just be a matter of mismatched expectations. Let's go there and and see what we see. And to have all the more reason and fodder to assume the best in people and to be able to figure out, ah, they may be irritating me because of this matter and not just because they suck, (laughs) you know, in some way, because almost nobody really sucks. So thanks, Edgar, for reminding me of that tool. And I hope you found that and other pieces useful. Again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F252. And I hope you'll push subscribe if you haven't already. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Matt Abrahams. And Matt is talking about how to manage nerves in a speaking situation. So he has taken that to a whole new level through his great work he does over there at Stanford. So I hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.